Hi, and thank you so much for joining us today. I'm Safia Kazi, and I'm the Privacy Professional Practices Principal at ISACA, and I'm excited to introduce you to our two subject matter experts here with me today. Joining us are Michelle Finneran-Denity and Anne Toth, who are both members of ISACA's Digital Trust Advisory Council. So let's get started with some brief introductions. Michelle, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, hi, thank you so much and thank you for having me. My name is Michelle Dennity. I'm the CEO of a company called Privacy Code. We are a privacy engineering and governance platform so you can plan, build, measure, and prove your privacy um, effectiveness. Thank you, and Anne, can you introduce yourself, please? Yeah, absolutely. I'm Ann Toth. Um, I am a digital trust and tech policy consultant. I've spent uh, my entire career since 1998 working primarily at the intersection of technology and policy uh, at some very well-known companies, starting with Yahoo, um, all the way up to uh, Slack and the World Economic Forum, where I've really gotten to work with folks at uh, sort of in all parts of the ecosystem from the private sector, the public sector, academia, civil society, uh, to work on making the internet a safer and better place for everyone. Well, we're really excited to have both of you here with us today. But let's start by digging into privacy and emerging tech, including IoT. I think a lot of times the average person just doesn't know about how much information IoT devices in their homes are collecting. Recently, I was reading an article about a robot vacuum that took photos in a house just for mapping purposes. But one of those photos was of a person using the restroom, and then that photo ended up online. And what would you tell the general public about the data collected by IoT devices? And what are some safeguards that should be put in place? Well, first of all, that particular example is a little inflammatory only because that was a beta program. And so I think that that was, there's some special circumstances around that specific instance. But one of the things, I mean, I, my most recent role was working on the Alexa product uh, and uh, the devices and uh, ring cameras are all sort of, I think, one of the most common examples of IoT in people's homes. Um, what we discovered there is that during the setup process, consumers want to know more about the security things. Um, and so we actually made those much more accessible uh, to consumers during that setup process. So it's important to know that when you have a camera enabled device, most of those devices come with a physical shutter that you can actually move over the camera to disable the camera, not just electronically, but physically to ensure it doesn't work. Uh, same thing with microphones. Uh, very often um, there's a way for you to actually mute the microphone on the actual uh, device itself. Um, and those options are made very visible to you, not just in uh, the interface of the design, but in, um, in the setup process. And I encourage customers to take more uh, interest in, in actually using some of those settings. I think that uh, that's the thing that, um, that we found is that they're there, but customers don't use them quite as often as perhaps they should. Yeah, that's fantastic. That brings me to my next question. Michelle, how can we go about better educating people about IoT devices to help them get the most benefit from those smart devices while also making their privacy preferences and considerations known? Yeah, it's such a good, um, I think it's it's a good approach to really understand what is this thing and, and is it a thing over here and, and we're doing rational, reasonable things over there? And the answer is, if you think about the internet of things, we're talking about sensors. We're talking about uh, a keyboard with a limited alphabet, for example. So for example, a, an internet of thing can take a photograph. 
it can take in information. It, you know, it is also your phone isn't is a thing. It is things that are putting information and data onto a platform, which is we're calling the internet, right? A shared group. So if you approach it first as this is data going into a shared platform and living for maybe an infinite period of time, you can start to break down how you approach the various types of things on the internet and the various instances and circumstances and context. And then you can start to add the things that we know about governance. I think where we go really wrong with some of this stuff is thinking only Black Mirror, worst case scenario stuff and ban it, ban it, ban it, or the reverse, which is this is happening anyway, get used to it, you'll enjoy the surveillance, take a postcard and just enjoy. And it's not, it's neither of those things. It's simply compute. It's just compute having a sensor that could be in unexpected areas. So think about the context, think about the impact of what that device or that thing or that sensor or that piece of data input is doing. And then think about really what are the controls necessary? Hopefully before you deploy, you're thinking about privacy and ethics engineering. Is, is the device and the group of information collected? Is it trying to do something positive or negative for the many, for the any, or for the money? And if you combine those kinds of things, I think we start to have a much more enriched and important and governance-focused um, discussion about what the Internet of Things could do. Remember that remembering that technology is neither, um, it's never neutral. It's either positive or negative. And it's up to us to, to push that, that balance. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, I know another really hot topic has been AI. I know so many people are having fun playing around with Lenza and ChatGPT, but they might not be thinking about the data that they're feeding into AI and some of the privacy implications of that. So Anne, can you tell us a little bit about AI and privacy and how we can go about teaching AI in a way that still preserves our privacy? Well, AI is really, when we talk about AI, what we're really talking about is machine learning. We're talking about algorithms that uh, take vast quantities, in many cases, of data uh, and get smarter as they ingest more and more data. One of the biggest problems with machine learning and AI and the world we live in today is that the data is not representative of the population as a whole. Uh, so it's often the case that uh, well-intentioned AI doesn't always work well for everyone. Um, and it's an interesting data problem because on the one hand, we have a lot of data being used to train AI, but in many cases, we don't have a lot of the right data being used to train AI, or we have too much of data about one population and not about others. Uh, so I think there's this question of whether, you know, it's a uh, whether we have the right data. And in particular with, uh, with underrepresented populations, um, this can result in really catastrophic results when you're talking about AI being used, for example, for medical diagnoses or for credit worthiness scores, uh, for things that impact your life and your ability to get a mortgage, to buy a car, to get the right health treatments. Um, and that's why I think we, while we focus on the vast quantities of data, we really need to be thinking about making sure we have the right data uh, for our models in order to ensure that they work properly. Yeah, I know one of the things that I feel like has been kind of a current throughout is that consumers aren't necessarily as informed as they should be. I'm curious to hear from you, Michelle, whose responsibility do you think it is to make sure consumers are informed? This seems like such a monumental task. 
It is. And, and I guess, I guess maybe I'm a simplistic person because I'm constantly breaking things down simplistically. I think, um, remember when AI was big data 10 years ago and we were talking about big data, what we were talking about then was parallel compute Hadoop, uh, processing on the cloud somewhere and the dispersed responsibility of a, a, a an enterprise and a, a data processing capability that was dispersed and that was big data and it had to be big. Now we're we're using the term rather sloppily, I have to say this is ISACA. I'm sure a lot of you are offended by the, the constant use of AI versus the various types of learning as and machine learning. And, and as Anne pointed out, who is responsible is a supply chain problem in my mind. If you're talking about training data sets and you are acquiring data sets, there is a responsibility on the collector of those large sets. There is a responsibility on the purchaser, whether you're purchasing it for free or you're purchasing it for some sort of remuneration. And there's a responsibility for the outcome and the decision-making based on that, that either automated decision that could be catastrophic, as Anne points out, or the human in the middle has to be trained and understand the bias that is built in. All data is biased. All software is biased. It is created by us mere mortal humans. And so understanding the responsibility really goes across the spectrum, across the life cycle. And it's very difficult when you see something that looks like a statistic to not believe in that number more than your, your learned experience. So understanding is the activity you're trying to do predict the weather because you're taking meteorological data, again, from sensor networks, probably that's very, very large data. And it's trying to predict a future condition so that you can be prepared. And the consequences could be monumental if we're talking about um, warning times for a tsunami, or they could be irritating because they're talking about a rain shower. But when we're talking about how are we combining sets to try to find insights to predict future, that is the worst application for AI. When we're talking about machine learning to do routine tasks, as some of this chat GPT stuff, for example, filling out my form at the DMV is probably a great application. There are known and limited pattern matched types of data, I could probably look over the work afterwards and get it done. If we're talking instead about pretending that you're a celebrity and trying to con money out of someone, or you're, you're doing a, a large data sharing based on cancer research, and you're not correcting for the fact that they're probably doing more than their fair share of male participants, and you're trying to predict what happens in a, in a female body or a child's body where there's not a lot of rationalized data. You have to correct for that bias or at least have some sort of disclaimer. So it was sort of a mealy mouth, who's responsible, everyone answer for you. But I really do believe that if we look at this as data ingestion and use, we can start to attack this problem. One of the reasons why you're seeing uh, a march towards greater and greater regulatory involvement in privacy uh, today is in large part because the gap between the way technology works and the way the average consumer understands it is growing 
exponentially and will continue to do so as technology gets more sophisticated. You can't expect a consumer who you know might have a high school or maybe a college education to be a PhD in AI and machine learning and understand the implications of every choice that they make. Um, and so the, the, the reality is that, that that's why we have laws and regulations to protect consumers so they don't have to make a choice where they don't understand the consequences of that choice. And increasingly, we've put the, well, historically, we put the burden so much in this notice and choice model where we're going to give you this long-winded, you know, 15-page privacy policy, and then you get a button that says, I agree. Or maybe you didn't even get a button, you just continue, right? And, and in that moment, you've, you've agreed to a contract that you've never read, you don't understand, and you don't have the capacity to understand because you don't understand the underlying technology. So more and more, I think when we see regulators step in to try to create privacy law, privacy regulation, and increasingly even regulate AI and ethics, what they're trying to do is to protect consumers from having to make a choice that is by definition uninformed. And so I think it is our obligation to bring citizens and, and consumers along on the journey to do our best to inform them, but it's also our obligation to understand that there are, there are places where there's just no capacity to make a choice with actual knowledge. So in those instances, how do we ensure the default settings are the privacy-friendly settings for that consumer and explain as best we can those trade-offs in language that they can understand, which is increasingly difficult. Absolutely. I, I could not agree more with this point because if there's anything ever that we could do some AI and predict, it is the ability for the consumer to click on some strangely placed button that might be sliding beneath your mobile phone where you have to press slide one over here and press slide over there and press a button over there and somehow get a result just about that moment, that day's browser activity on that one site when all the action's happening somewhere totally different. So I totally agree with this. And I think it's actually, it's, it's I don't know if the word is ironic or just there is a God and she is funny. But, you know, when my old boss, Scott McNeely, said, you have no privacy, get over it, he, he's, a, he's an unapologetic libertarian. He wants no regulations. That statement has spawned more lines of regulation than chat GPT, because we recognize with that kind of glib approach that consumers will be harmed. There will be people who absolutely, even if they did say, yes, you're explaining this horrible thing to me, still have no control on the back end and cannot you know, we're not being parental. We're trying to put the blame and the responsibility where it is due, like food safety, like um, manufacturing of faulty goods or, or building bridges that we drive on. There are places that are the appropriate places to start to build in the controls. And none of us really should be just holding our hands up and saying, I don't know. Yeah, that's such a fantastic point. I couldn't agree more that it's just so hard for people, even people who maybe are working in privacy to go through and actually read the privacy notice of every single thing you use it would take weeks probably. Um, you know, I think one of the other issues that we tend to see is that sometimes the issues that we see as far as privacy policies being inaccessible might sometimes further disadvantage already marginalized groups. You know, for example, if we have a privacy policy that is not designed with things like colorblindness in mind, are people accidentally clicking that they accept even if they don't? Uh, so I'm curious, Anne, what happens when we have these kind of disparities where privacy is more accessible to some groups rather than others? 
you know, we're we're well past this uh, place where we should be relying on privacy policies themselves, right? I mean, I think um, the idea that uh, that because as you mentioned, like I think we have seen analyses of these of these documents where they're they're documents written by lawyers for lawyers because it's primarily around litigation and other other cases where these are things that that get uh, that get brought forward. Um, they're really not designed for for the average consumer. Um, more, I actually think that that the movement towards more uh, mobile experiences has really created an interesting um, user design challenge for for web developers and app developers to think about privacy in context, to think about limited screen space. I, I think the worst thing that ever happened to privacy are cookie pop up notices. I think are probably uh, the 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 most in you know I think the the most reviled, right? Because uh, because it's interruptive, it doesn't work well in a mobile environment. Um, and frankly, it's not it's not in any way, shape or form meaningful consent. And uh, the biggest challenge with all of these pop-ups is that they have, they have actually just worn consumers down. So we just click to get the thing off our screen without ever reading what they have to say, even when what they say is important. Um, but, you know, I think as we think more and more about the web and its expansion across the globe, we have to think more and more about uh, about populations, perhaps that um, that don't ha have you know a college degree uh, that that aren't uh, reading as well as other populations. We have to be thinking about all the different ways. And in fact, when we think about protecting children online as well, um, it's a whole other ball game when you think about the um, the challenges of, of interacting with a population like that as well. So, I mean, I, I spent actually a lot of my career thinking about web design um, for populations with various disabilities, whether it be neurodiversity or physical disabilities, or frankly, just aging. And the one of the most vulnerable populations online are not children, it's actually the elderly um, and their comprehension levels. So if you think inclusively about building your products for all customers, I think one of the problems you will solve is thinking about uh, privacy and choice and all of these other factors. Um, but unfortunately, that's not, uh, that's not the way all developers are thinking today. Yeah, and I, I want to tag on to this too, because, and, and this is where it's a, I guess my my words are more controversial than my intention, but things like the cookie banner, things like do not sell, have I think harmed consumers. And here's why. Uh, of course, I want to notify people, and of course, I want people to have meaningful choice and interaction. But if you walk up to your to your normal television set and you ask it for a ham sandwich, you will not get a ham sandwich. And you can send me a fine for that. And you can ask me why I can't get my ham sandwich. The reason you can't get a ham sandwich from a television is it is not designed to do that. So when we tell people we're going to put some sort of a slap on interface and say, you can now dictate to a trillion dollar engine of money to stop doing your 0.0001 cent piece of that pie without having the concomitant engineering that has to go into putting those things in place, understanding that you should have a, a demand for an inventory of your data should have come before a demand for an interface to tell people, because what happened is we put all our resources trying to make our consumers happy instead of doing the thing that could make their data healthier. And so you have to have this balance. Of course, we need to have good, meaningful regulation, but I think having more of the ISACA community communicating with what is possible, 
how can we reimagine a different way of communicating? So we are addressing lower vision, lower um, maybe cognitive ability, or for our seniors, for example, many of them living in senior homes or group living circumstances, they don't have individual rights on what they're getting and what they're experiencing. And yet having something like Second Life or Metaverse, whatever we're going to call it this generation, would be wonderful for them. There's, there's a pandemic of loneliness on this planet that can be you know, really enhanced by what we're building here today. But it's not going to be click this button or sign on behalf of your loved one and and suddenly a ham sandwich pops out of a television set. Yeah, that's a really interesting analogy. I now I'm know. hungry. <laughs> <laughs> See what I did there? Uh, so now the next thing I wanted to talk about is privacy and trust. I'm curious, Michelle, can you tell us a little bit about why those two ideas are so closely linked? I think defining privacy um, and data protection, whatever you call this thing, the way I look at privacy and, and that underlying bundle of rights, whether it's the human right to have self-determination, whether it is the, the, the right to have independent thought and, and secrecy sometimes and public displays that cannot be perverted and lied about later, I think of privacy as the authorized processing or storytelling or sharing any kind of processing, even storage of information that describes humans. And the minute you are describing a single human, whether you're calling them, you know, you know, King's Road or you're calling them that that human carbon sack of Michelle, every time we 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 process that thing, we are thinking about what is the moral, ethical, legal and sustainable, reasonable curation of that story. And so when we think about privacy in that way is authorized processing throughout its life cycle, responsible processing and building and constant rebuilding when circumstances in context change, you can start to see why what we do is privacy engineering. And we allow you to have enough access information, or if you are not in a position to to really interact with the system, we have sort of a moral rights that we're going to provide something that's not harmful. And that is the thing that sets up the user to start to have enough information or enough intuition to trust. I don't think trust is something that you build. I think it's something that you earn. Yeah, I like that. Um, now, yesterday I did a webinar about our findings from our state of privacy report. And one of the big things is that resources are just lacking. Privacy teams don't have the funding they need. They don't have the headcount. Maybe they don't have executive support. So, Anne, how can organizations go about advocating why privacy is so important and getting some of the resources that they need to do all of the things that can help establish trust with customers? I think too many organizations think of privacy as sort of an after the fact compliance function. Um, they think, which, you know, is sort of a, a thing you worry about. Uh, you have a set of rules you need to follow and then you need to make sure you're following those rules and nothing but that. If you think of it as the cornerstone of building a trusted relationship over a lifetime with a customer and you look at the lifetime value of that customer and, and what privacy means in that context, um, it's a much bigger ROI for companies to look at it in that way. 
way. Uh, and I think that that's, that's the difference. More and more, I think we're hearing boards, corporate boards, board members talk about this and, and recognizing the importance of it. Um, you know, 10, 20 years ago, Privacy was not something we talked about proactively with customers. It was it was seen as as sort of like talking about security in the con in the sense that uh, you know nobody wanted to talk about car safety for a long time because nobody wanted to sell a car by reminding people that you could die in your car. Uh, but when you started realizing that actually consumers prioritize security in their automobiles and actually were making buying decisions based on that. Uh, then all of a sudden, companies started talking more about security as a differentiator, as a competitive differentiator. And privacy has gone from being the thing that we didn't want to remind consumers, you know, there's something that could happen with your data, you'd be afraid. Now we're talking about privacy as a competitive differentiator. And I think you see it in some very well-known company marketing materials today about how companies are saying, we are the privacy first company. Um, we care about your privacy. Come come buy our products. Um, and it's resonating with consumers. When you do consumer research, you realize that customers are now making buying choices and decisions about which apps, which experiences to use based on who they feel is the most trustworthy, privacy-friendly company. Um, and when you look at it that way, it's an investment. It's not simply an insurance policy. Question from the audience. Um, so this question is saying, will someone allow you to deploy policies on his or her device? I think maybe this is getting at the idea that some IoT devices don't have an intuitive interface, like on a phone, if you download an app, you can kind of see things. I'm curious, uh, are there possible improvements that we could make as far as IoT devices and knowing more about how to control privacy settings on something that might not have an easy user interface to access? I've seen some experimentation where companies actually tested this idea of creating like three different persona, right? Where you have the privacy concerned or the less privacy concerned, um, and then just allowing those settings to be selected or to do a uh, like a questionnaire and then have your settings uh, selected as a result of of sort of your of the output of this privacy questionnaire at the beginning of a of a setup process. And the problem with all of that is that it's customers are afraid that they didn't see all the voices and no one is at this point comfortable enough to cede that control in that way. So I haven't seen a successful uh, model yet for that, although I know lots of people have been trying to think about how to simplify these settings so that people have to think less uh, about them. And then you were going to jump in, Michelle. Yeah, I was going to jump in and it's actually, I'm, I'm really glad you went first now because it's the perfect segue of, you know, I was going to say it, it depends is the weenie lawyer answer, right? It's a circumstantial thing, but I don't, I think that's the easy out. I think there, there's a lot of innovation to be had, um, particularly where the, the profits are still really, it, it's an ad-based world for a lot of the, the concerning sort of surveillance type IoT stuff. I don't think we're as concerned in a factory setting, for example, with IoT looking at our SCADA systems to see that, you know, that the electricity is running, keeping the plant going and that sort of thing. Where we get into trouble is um, we have denser and denser types of sensors and, and observational things that we like. You know, we like our cars to, to stop in a parking lot, you know, if a child runs out behind it, that you're recording and you're, and you're taking in a lot of dense information. So where that density of information that collection is happening, we are seeing more of these experiments persona focused on who might be impacted, which I think is 
it has to start at the very beginning of your privacy engineering is what are the business rules at play here? And then I think there's other things that we need to con continue to do, which is having a better way to either after collection, have some sort of an ability to groom or, or destroy. And, and I think if there's anything to take away of one of the, the fastest and best and, and most unintuitive in an AI-soaked big data world is you need to Marie Kondo your data. You need to start sparking joy with stuff that's actually sparking joy for your customers and bring in the bottom line. And that old data that you thought you were just going to collect and collect because big data is bigger, there's no pony in there. It's just poo. It's there. Stop digging. It's just poo. So starting to have a routine deletion and grooming strategy and more tools for, for more people along the supply chain of data to be able to minimize and go back to basic principles of, you know, this is the 1960s. We're going back to minimization strategies. And you know why? Because they work. Absolutely. Well, unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. But Anne and Michelle, we really appreciate having you here. And thank you so much to everybody who joined this session. Have a great day, everyone, and we'll see you next time.